Hello, Dad. Hi. How are you? Good, good. Busy at least. It's my dad is cleaning. <laughs> Bridget Makonza is a 47-year-old woman, but she still feels like a daddy's girl. He encouraged her to be studious, even from a young age. My dad always told us that it's important to be educated, to go to school so that one day, when he's not here on earth, we'll be able to to be independent and take care of the family. Saul Makonza always knew his daughter was destined for great things. During the time when I was working for Siemens, I decided to take a course with the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers in Cape Town. While Saul was studying, Bridget always had her nose in his books. She was quite a brilliant girl. And then I said that uh, if she could keep on like this, She'll have a very bright future. As an adult, Bridget landed a job at Anglo-American, a multinational billion-dollar company. I don't know that kind of work she was doing, the, the, these difficult things, of what educated people do. Yeah, I was very proud of her. I was on the verge of something big, but then my life was interrupted. Think back on the last 10 years. How many weddings, graduations, baby showers, and funerals have you attended? Think about the new things. Instagram, Taxify, Spotify. Now imagine losing a decade. This is what happened to Jabulo, Boswell, Bridget, and Tembegile. In this special report from News24 and the Vitz Justice Project, we tell the stories of people who were wrongfully convicted. We explore the human cost of when justice is denied. Yeah, I used to have big hair like Sarah Ramaphosa when he had those big hair. Yeah. Bridget is the oldest of Saul's three daughters. She, she's a very tough young lady. She was very protective. Growing up, she had dreams of becoming a doctor or a social worker. I'm the type of a person who loves to take care of people. As I grew up, I realized that there is more ways that you can take care of people. My focus was not only on healing the flesh, but also to heal people emotionally and mentally. But after matric, Bridget couldn't pursue her dreams. She had a son to take care of. He was born when Bridget was a teenager. August 12th, I gave birth to my son, Golani, at home. He was wrapped in a pillowcase. <laughs> they called an ambulance. We went to Paraguanath Hospital. I stayed there for about three days. Bridget had to grow up fast. She was now responsible for another person. I couldn't go to varsity, you know, or college for that matter. I had to look for a job and work. So, and then I, I worked at the jet for just a few months. I felt that this is not my field. Retail is what she knew. So, at the turn of the millennium, she was running a small business from her apartment in Hillbrow. <laughs> She grew a loyal following. One of her regular customers was a man named France. 
He was working in the geology department at Anglo-American and was in the market for an assistant. He liked her work ethic and wanted to poach her. It was amazing that something that I never thought I would do. I was in the geology department, you know, scanning um, maps uh, from all over the world, you know. I would scan them in this machine and make A3 reduction, file them, all that. It was very exciting. Working at Anglo-American came with prestige. Maybe a, a person, any person would ask you, where do you work? And you say Anglo-American. You say it proudly, you say, wow, for Oppenheimer. So that means you've got a lot of money. She was determined to work her way up that corporate ladder. I wanted to become something at Anglo-American. I was inspired by young black geologists. Her chutzpah helped her land a bursary to study database design through Rosebank College. Life was about to change. It's a warm Saturday afternoon and Bridget is in high spirits. Bridget and a friend are off to Pimble to hang out with her sister Jacqueline. Jacqueline's renting a room in a house not far from where they grew up. The reason why we came to Soweto, it was because of soccer. So we decided, no, let's go and spend a day with Jackie. As the sun set, the party of three expanded. Everything was okay, up until that guy got tipsy. You know, I was starting to feel uncomfortable because of the way he was looking at me. The friend that Bridget had brought along to Jacqueline's house was actually her girlfriend, Princess. One of the men who joined the party had a problem with Bridget's relationship. He said, women, they don't see us anymore because of people like you, Bridget. You give these women money, you buy clothes for these women, you spoil them. And we cannot afford to do the things that you do. Bridget was feeling unsafe. Corrective rape is a dark cloud that hangs over many gay women who want to live their truth. It's a common practice in South Africa, but the exact number of incidents is impossible to calculate as South African police don't specifically record the cases. Bridget and Princess planned to sleep over, so when it was lights out, they retired to Jacqueline's room. I think at about one o'clock, half past one, early hours of the morning, I felt somebody, a person pulling down my trouser. When he pulled it stronger down, that's when I woke up and said, what are you doing? The man on top of her was that man who'd been bullying her earlier that evening. He said, I want to teach you that you'll always be a woman. Bridget had been sexually assaulted before and she wasn't going to let it happen again. I was once a victim of rape. I know that it haunts me all the time, you know, because I didn't go for counseling. Bridget was kidnapped as a child and held for nine months for an intended Muti murder. All I can say, it's been a very difficult experience from when I was young. So I vowed that I will protect myself and those that I love, no matter what it takes. She avoids talking about the experience at length. When she woke up, 
and saw that stranger in her sister's room, it triggered those old memories. I couldn't allow it to happen again. I was very scared, more than scared, but I told myself that I'm not going to show it. When Princess saw the intruder on top of Bridget, she screamed. He stepped her on the neck, so she was bleeding and she was running. I ran and I grabbed her and I told her that, look, everything's going to be all right. You need to come down. They called emergency services and while they waited for help, Bridget wrapped Princess's wounds with a T-shirt. I went back to the room. I found something like a rod. Bridget wanted answers. She knew the attacker was still on the property because he was also an overnight guest at the shared accommodation. I was more than angry. I was beyond angry. I would explode if I was a bomb, you know. She kicked in the door. I know that I broke his arm. I know that I also broke his leg. That I know for sure. There was blood everywhere. And I remember that I did phone my dad to come to the scene and he was like, I never thought that you could do such a thing. I said, Dad, I don't know how it happened. I was furious. After the attack, Princess was taken to hospital where they tended her wounds. Fortunately, they weren't fatal. Bridget and Princess didn't press charges and neither did the injured attacker. They thought the matter was behind them. Right. Okay, slow down. It's uh, it's this house. It's been 19 years since that night, and Bridget has so many unanswered questions. She was almost raped. However, after the incident, she was painted as the villain. During their fight. Bridget and her attacker damaged some furniture. The furniture belonged to the landlady, Gloria Koza. She opened a case for me on uh, malicious damage to property, claiming that I broke in doors, windows, cupboards, beds, TVs, and all that. At that time, I wasn't looking at breaking anything. I was fighting, and yeah, it was self-defense. When Bridget appeared in court on charges of malicious damage to property, she didn't deny that items had been broken, but she argued that it was all in the name of self-defense. Her cries of self-defense fell on deaf ears, and the court ruled in favor of the landlady. I was found guilty, and I was fined 1,600 rands or four months in prison. I think that magistrate was homophobic in a way the way he treated me. He said, yeah, as big as you are, you think that you can go around bully men and you hit men and, you know. I just felt helpless that, why can't they hear the side of my story? Doesn't he understand that once a person is in your room, you need to defend yourself and the people that you are with. Bridget was ordered to pay an additional 4,000 Rand to cover the cost of damages. She was instructed to make monthly installments of 200 rand to Gloria. Bridget wanted the whole ordeal behind her, so on some months she'd pay more than the minimum required fee. 
I, I just wanted everything to be over and done with because I felt that I still have this cloud hanging. After several months, she was finally able to finish her payments, making a final payment of 1,000 rand. Bridget thought she could now move on with her life. But Gloria had other plans. When I went to work, my boss told me that there was a, um, a police officer looking for me, phoning. When I arrived at the Clipton police station, and I found that investigating officer who said, you've got a case and it's very serious. Gloria opened another case against Bridget, this time accusing her of armed robbery. She alleged that Bridget came back to her house carrying a gun the day after making her final payment of a thousand rand. She said Bridget pointed the gun at her and wanted her money back. So I said, but this is insanity, honestly. Bridget protested her innocence, stating that she was in Pretoria with friends during the time of the alleged armed robbery. But she was charged and had to appear in court. She was granted bail. Bridget thought the matter would blow over. In her opinion, there was no physical evidence linking her to the crime. She didn't even own a gun, and she had people who would corroborate her whereabouts. I did ask the court that I have witnesses. They, they didn't want my, my, my friends. They said, if those witnesses are my friends, I might have tipped them. During court proceedings, when the landlady and her daughter Lindy were quizzed about the supposed weapon that Bridget carried, they had difficulty even describing it. Herself and her daughter, she, they couldn't properly tell the court what type of a gun I carried whether it was a nine millimeter, or was it silver, was it black, and all that. As a result, the gun charges were set aside. The case against Bridget therefore hinged solely on the testimonies made by Gloria and her daughter. Bridget suddenly felt more confident that the entire saga would soon be over. After all, it was now a case of she said, she said. On the 11th of July, 2002, the verdict was ready. Bridget was found guilty of robbery. Her bail was revoked and she was incarcerated. And I felt that the justice system has failed me. She'd already marked the 13th of July, 2002 on her calendar as a day her life would change. But, she didn't know that on that day, her life would change for the worse. Unfortunately, I was found guilty on the 11th of July, 2002. That was a Thursday, and I was supposed to start the training on a Saturday. Bridget spent nine months at Johannesburg Correctional Center waiting for her sentencing. The prison is located in the south of Johannesburg and is better known as Sun City. Yo, when I got there, I was like, my goodness, I am going to die here. I don't think I'm going to survive prison. In those nine months, Bridget was placed in a section of the prison dedicated to people whose court proceedings weren't yet finalized. It's a type of limbo. It was so full and I'm like, how do these people sleep? The living conditions were less than sanitary. I remember I had an infection. 
you know, uh, because of the toilet. And I was like, my goodness, the situation is very bad. 70 people, 60 people sleeping in one cell, sharing one toilet. It, it was, it was absurd, eh? But that is the situation in prison. They tell you that this is not your home. You know, you've committed a crime. You are being punished. That's, that is why you are here. Her family became the only constant in her life. She started losing friends and her relationship with Princess unraveled. With me, the reason why I honestly believe even today that I had survived prison, my family took care of me from the first up until the last day. On the 3rd of April, 2003, Bridget was sentenced to 10 years behind bars. Her fate was seemingly sealed. Yo, I cried. Yo, I cried so hard. I was afraid, uh, to be honest with you, because you know, you hear stories that in prison, inmates, they fight, they stab each other, and there, nobody will enter because even the prison wardens, they are afraid of um, inmates. She even considered ending her life. I think really she, yeah, she threw in a towel, like people say. You know what I was thinking about? My son, my family, my work, the opportunity that Anglo-American gave me. It was like everything, it's, you know, disappearing right in front of my eyes. Then Bridget told me that, no, it's all right. I'll commit suicide, then everything will be, will be all right. I said, it's not the end of the world. I've seen many people doing lengthy sentences in prison. One day, you'll come out. I'll be there for you, whatever you need, whenever you need it, I will be there for you. Bridget realized that she couldn't make a permanent decision based on a temporary situation. So she decided to stick it out. Every day I adjusted to saying this, it's my life now. This, I have to face it in a positive way so that I will survive. She had a teenage son who needed his mother despite her current situation. It was a pain for me because you, your mom is not near you. You just see her for a few minutes, few hours, then you leave. Bridget's son, Kolani, is 30 years old. In that situation she was in, she needed me. I had to be there for her. So I had to grow up. I had no choice. Prison can break you or it can make you. It's entirely up to you as an individual, you know, that once you are there, what is it that you, you want to do with your life? Six months into her sentence, she decided to make the best of her situation. I still have nine more years. Nine years, um, six months to go. <laughs> so it's, it's ample time for me to study, you know. Maybe I'll even have my PhD while I'm in prison. <laughs> what I recall of Bridget, she was always the strong one. Leslie Ann van Selm is the founder of a non-profit organization called Kulisa Social Solutions based in Johannesburg. She first met Bridget at Sun City, where she ran an art workshop teaching inmates to make crafts from recycled goods. Bridget quickly became the class leader. She's really quite an exceptional human being. 
very determined, very strong, um, hungry, hungry for knowledge, hungry for attention, um, hungry for growth. Bridget also participated in an anger management course facilitated by Kulisa. This gave the two women another opportunity to become better acquainted. She was very abrasive sometimes. Bridget felt shortchanged by the justice system and had trouble managing her anger. But despite the pain, she continued to have a positive outlook on life. And I became hugely reliant on her to always make sure that whenever we were coming, um, that the offenders would be there and waiting. She put her nose in the books. She enrolled for courses in statutory and mercantile law. And it was while reading through the multiple acts in her statutory law book that something dawned on Bridget. I realized that, Norman, in a statute law book, I was wrongfully convicted. I said, I want to appeal my case. Even though my attorney said there are no chances of me um, getting out of prison, the 10 years was minimum. I always believe that the truth always comes out, no matter what. I am going to take my chances. In 2004, she grabbed the bull by the horns and started working on appealing her case. As for her fellow inmates, well, they were skeptical. And I know other people were looking at me like, you are crazy. Do you have money? No, I don't have money. There's legal aid. Ah, those legal aid lawyers, you are going to get extra from what you got. Might be 15, might be 20, that's fine. But I am going to try and I'm going to do this, guys. You'll see. Bridget was willing to risk it all for a chance at freedom. When you get forms for appeal, you need to state why you strongly believe that you are not guilty. So what I did there, I had started the whole story. I wrote each and everything. Because I even emphasized the fact that how could I risk my career, my son's life and my family for a thousand rands. This is Dr. James Grant, an advocate of the High Court of South Africa. Appeals are a technical nightmare. Although Dr. Grant didn't work on Bridget's case, as a specialist in criminal law, he knows the ins and outs of the criminal justice system. For a layperson to take it on, um, really requires, of course, massive dedication, um, massive amounts of insight, and of course, time. But it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Dr. Grant says many inmates take the path of appealing their own cases because often legal representation is just too expensive. There's, there's no question that the legal system has an entrenched interest in continuing to be especially expensive because it's a money-making racket. The system is put to such abuse so that people can make money out of others' misery. He explains that advocates can charge anything between 10,000 and 15,000 rand a day, which translates to between 1,000 and 1,500 rand an hour. Advocates with more experience can charge an even higher fee. The system has been allowed to allow them to get disgustingly rich. Bridget forged on, on her own. She spent weeks on her appeal, 
when she felt she had presented her case thoroughly, she filed her documents with the High Court in Gauteng. And then, she waited. Several months passed. And then in 2005, uh, somewhere in July, they called me from the intercom. Bridget Makonza, uh, report to the uh, visiting area. She hurried to the visiting area, wondering who was there to see her. On arrival, she found a man she didn't know. He introduced himself and said that he was an official from the court. He told her that they'd received her application for an appeal and that she was expected to be in court on the 11th of October, 2005. It was very exciting. We went to court, we waited. As usual, her father was by her side, steadfast in his support. I believed wholeheartedly that she was innocent. When she arrived at court, she met her legal aid lawyer for the very first time. She was anxious about the outcome of the appeal. He never even had a chance to, to talk in court. Bridget says she was in the dark for what seemed like 10 minutes. The judges were ready with a verdict even before her lawyer had an opportunity to plead her case. She asked me, what is the judge really saying? I said, no, you are free to go home. I'm taking you home with me. Judges Goldstein and Moshidi set aside Bridget's conviction and sentence. They said that she should be released with immediate effect. But I was confused, like my dad said, that I didn't even hear. It was like... I don't know. In that moment, Bridget was totally overwhelmed. I went back to the section, so I had to tidy up everything, take whatever I needed, you know, leave whatever. For my friends, obviously, you see these. And, yeah, they, they, they wait for you now. You've got to go. You've got to go. You, can, you can't say goodbye for every, to everyone. Even though she's now a free woman, the scars created by her incarceration have not healed. I don't trust people. I'm very calculative. I always think twice. Even my mother mentioned that, you know, you, you are a cold-hearted person. Like, you're not that Bridget that we used to know. Her relationships have suffered as a result. The person that I am now, the way I don't trust, I always go through my partner's phone. Three of the women that I've dated, they say when I talk, I break, I break them inside. I, I make a person feel as if they're nothing. You know, I, I had wished to become something. I'd worked so hard in my life and uh, I'm still struggling. First of all, I'm struggling to get a stable job. Desperate to find a job. Bridget reached out to Leslie Ann. And because she'd been master trained in this form of art and recycling and so on, um, it made sense for us to bring her in to continue facilitating and developing the program. And um, that's what she did. And then she evolved into different areas of community coordination and was, was a very reliable person to work with. After almost a decade with the organization, she was ready to spread her wings. It was appropriate at the time for us to help Bridget with some money 
for her to go and fulfill her dreams, and that was setting up her own NGO. Bridget felt like she had found her calling, and in 2014, she opened her very own NGO. But roughly a year after opening the doors to the organization, a lack of funding forced her to halt operations. What I'm looking at now in my area where I'm staying, I've got women that are unemployed. And it bothers me that people are losing hope. And I'm asking myself, what is wrong? So I, I need to do something about it. Bridget can't help but wonder how different her life would have been if she hadn't been wrongfully convicted. I was telling my son that, you know, my wish was to retire at the age of 55. I'm 47. My goodness, I've got nothing. How am I going to survive? There was a double injustice done to me because I was almost raped and that was never considered. And I was sent to prison for a crime that I did not commit. So I still feel that I was unfairly treated twice. Justice Denied is a News 24 production in collaboration with the Vitz Justice Project. This episode was produced by Charlene Root, written by Charlene Root and Nokutula Manyati, narrated by Jerusha Sukthio Rath, with editorial oversight by Jerusha Sukthio Rath and Carolyn Rafaeli. You can find this and more episodes on News 24, SoundCloud, and your podcast store.